Welcome to an episode of Leah and the Internet. I hope you enjoy the show. Leah and the Internet is a show featuring rotating guests who discuss the impact the Internet has on the world. So who's Leah Devon-Tarantino? I'm an artist, currently living in San Francisco. On this episode, listen to two old millennials reminisce about the Internet and discuss where it might be heading. Stephanie Lee, artist, technologist, and educator, talks about the foundation of our data, the Internet of Things, and we both kind of gripe about self-driving cars. So I'm here with Stephanie Lee. Hello. Hey. Uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, so I am an artist, um, and I'm also an engineer, software developer, and all-around uh, noodler. <laughs> <laughs> and we met at the Acre Residency, and now I live in San Francisco. You live in San Francisco? Mm-hmm. I live in San Francisco. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like many other people do. Yeah. And where can people find you online? Um, at my website, stephanielee.com. So uh, I was excited about you being a guest for many reasons, because I find you to be an interesting person and a great artist and all the other things that you say um, when interviewing somebody or talking to someone. But we both have a unique situation where we're artists and work in technology or with tech companies. And we're on the older end of the spectrum in terms of the definition of millennial, where like I would consider both of us to be digital natives, but we can distinctly remember a time before the internet. Yes. Like, I can even remember a time before cell phones were, like, incredible. Like, nobody in, like, high school, let's say, had a cell phone in yeah. my world. And it's kind of created a lot of articles, and I don't know if they get aggregated to me because of my age and my interest, but I've seen a lot lately of, like, BuzzFeeds, like, how old are you in millennial years or like 45 things that all millennials cared about that are like our age. And it made me start to think about the way I used to participate online, AOL chats. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I was in chat rooms back in the day. And how scandalous I thought chat rooms were. (laughs) Like I remember being so excited and fearful, like at the same time. And there was like this weird idea, like I knew I was lying in chat rooms, right? Like I don't know if you did it, but like I totally, (laughs) like I was older, I was taller, I was like all these different things. But I always assumed that the person on the other end was really telling the truth yeah like I wonder how many times I was talking to like another awkward 16 year old (laughs) and my introduction to the internet was also around the same time as the sims yeah like flourish I don't know how into or if at all you got into that game I wasn't in the sims but um but I was in like bbs and chat rooms back in the day on aol I also remember in college there was this one what was it message board it was like board.crucial org bco and like they had to like let you in and it was like the hipster holy grail of like coolness <laughs> and like now thinking back on it about like one how easy it is to connect with people yeah. on the internet but this idea that like there was like bco meetups and yeah. all this stuff and i i remember having like a, a really good friend of mine he was a nerd like i'm a nerd and maybe you're a nerd but this idea of being a part of this like really secret community. I remember that. Actually, I remember in the Bay Area, this was probably around 2001, there used to be like two uh, Yahoo groups, if anybody remembers those. <laughs> <laughs> um, but there were two Yahoo groups. Like one was, I think, SF Hypno Zombies, and then the other one was Spockmark, and it was like hipster, uh, like 
super weird noise music stuff but you it was the same thing you had to be invited um not just anybody could join yeah especially at first and um so it was very exclusive to get on the list <laughs> about like secret music shows and stuff but now i mean i don't know if there's like an equivalent of that now it's kind of interesting to think about when the access and information was gated that the internet was this cool thing yeah right yeah, and yeah. i don't feel like when i talk to especially like millennials of our age or even like younger that the internet's cool anymore the internet's yeah. fun and the internet is informative and sure. it's it's all these things sure. but like is it cool yeah i think it's i think people are thinking of the internet like it's a utility like running water or electricity there's nothing cool about it you yeah you would not want it. No. <laughs> <laughs> no, but there's no cachet to having it. Yeah. Because everybody has water. And I remember thinking, like, my my life online when it started was so calculated. Yeah. Like, yeah. I, I remember, like, agonizing over, like, my AIM profile handle. picture. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, my handle. Like, I, I remember thinking I was, like, the most clever person on earth in college when I made like my aim like poop eaters international or something like and I was like oh this is so raunchy and I'm a girl and it's weird and and I would always get comments on it and like every time somebody would mention it I'd be like yeah that was really clever of me and I don't I don't like I just use my regular name most of the time for all of my handles and... do you think like nowadays because I I feel like I used to make up names but now I feel like my internet names are basically normal they're kind of like fake authentic but before, I think people used to maybe play with their online identity more. I think because we were introduced to the internet and like with with a sense of anonymity. Yeah. With the chat rooms, there was also like a bewilderment to how the internet yeah. functioned and ran, right? Yeah. So it was all like this magical place and there was a fictitiousness to it. And then as things became more visible and you could tie actions more closely to people, I think that like the fantasy kind of started to diminish. Yeah. And like my Twitter handle is Hehlea. It's like H-E-H-L-E-A. That was from an old AOL screen name (laughs) where it was Hehlea where I always thought that would be funny. And I hate it now. I hate it because I don't want to change it to like yeah. my, my Instagram's Leah Devin, my sure. website's Leah Devin. Sure. Like sure. if I change it, I feel like... You're losing that old old person. Yeah, like, there, like there's something, but every time I see it, I'm like, God, what a nerd. Like, like who, who, who did I think I was? Like I remember live journal drama. Yeah, like people yeah. writing on their live journal and then like someone else like finding it in high school. And the only reason you Oh my gosh, I remember scandals like that. Yeah, like it was like the end of the world and it was so scary when it would happen. But you wrote it to be found. Like you secretly, yes. I remember slipping in um I wanted to write poetry in high school and I would sometimes say it was someone else's but it would be mine to make sure people would be like, Oh, I like it or if they were like, Oh, this is stupid, I'd be like, Well that's so and so (laughs) like it was always me. I was even doing um you know how I'm not sure if you you use this function and I talked about it on the last podcast, but Facebook does like an on this day where it like goes back and shows you and even how like the bare bones of Facebook kind of worked on 
the the history of how the internet used to be for us yeah. where people would write notes yeah or like they try to facilitate like a live journal type yeah. of experience i do remember notes that didn't last very long on facebook did it no and like <laughs> it, it almost was like reminiscent of email chain yes. chain letters like yes forward this to 25 people That's or you'll right. get bad luck or something it would be like 25 like, favorite records tag top, 10, top 10 movies top 10 books and then like i wonder is is it just because i'm at the age where that stuff just doesn't matter anymore but then there's a lot of apps that have been created that like i just don't participate in like yik yak yeah. sure, sure um kick yeah. what's whisper, whisper that do a lot of those i think that people are craving a place where they can have conversation that in theory, wouldn't ever be kept on record. And I think that people know if they are to have a conversation on um, social media, like Twitter or Facebook, it, it will follow them forever. Yeah. <laughs> I was learning that companies, banking companies, have actually started sweeping social media profiles oh. to get a better sense of somebody's actual, like tying their personality online mm. to their credit. I see. I see. And I didn't know that that was something that was being developed or is happening. Yeah. It kind of blew my mind that we participate interesting. in all of these things. In my mind, there's part of me that hasn't disconnected from the, the old, like you put it yeah. in the internet and it just kind of goes somewhere. It's, it goes somewhere that's often buried and nobody looks at it. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's interesting what you're saying about the banks because I... Nobody really quite knows what Palantir does, but mm-hmm. I suspect that's what they do. They work with a lot of financial institutions and go through Who? Um, this company called Palantir based in Palo Alto. I think it's a privately held company, but they're reputed to be the ones who found Osama bin Laden. So That's they, crazy. They do work, I think, with the State Department, um, Department of Defense, and I think a lot of financial institutions to run their extra special algorithms to try to make sense of all of this data because these other the people that hire them grant them access to this information i think they can connect the dots between like your your public persona online and your actual banking activity like big brother is real it's here and it's well, happening it, yeah, it's totally, i was talking about this kind of at length where because of how content be, can be so manipulated and like easily moved around yeah. online or deleted that people talk about big brother in yeah. 1984 and george orwell it did kind of yeah. predict a lot of like what we exist with right now to the point that you were just saying where there's somebody who's like sifting through all of this yeah we've historically participated online as a culture with very little thought or whim and very seldomly thought about how does our offline existence actually impact our online systems and i shared with you an article about or maybe you shared it with me it was a while ago there's an article (laughs) and there's many articles like this but this one was specifically on boing boing where they talk about how racism and sexism mm-hmm. is now backed in our data. It is a foundational plank mm-hmm. to everything that's been built on top of it. Yeah, uh, Maybe part of it is because there was that idea of anonymity. And yeah. there may be, <laughs> in, in a very positive way, and I subscribe to this idea that we try to think of people as good. Sure. But we have been trained, especially in like American culture, to 
not be so good. Yeah, yeah. Even unintentionally. Yeah, absolutely. On NPR the other day, I heard somebody say, like, oh, they got gypped out of money. Like, oh, it's, wow. you know, it's, it's just... It's in our language. Yeah, it's in our language. It's in our existence. And now it's, like, in our data. Yes. And what they're finding is because job applications have targeted certain things and the way that data, like, starts developed, um, it, our algorithms are weeding out minority candidates from jobs. Right. Because of, like, sexist behavior that has happened mm. with, like, predecessing you know systems that algorithms have been built to calculate like women's pay like it's not just like this ideology of like oh women should make less like our systems believe right that i think yeah i think you're right i think that the the world that we we live in online is reflective of our physical circumstances our actual social circumstances and it is really strange to think nobody quite knows what the internet is it's this amorphous Mm -hmm. like bunch of no's but it 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 absolutely 100% maps to our reality yeah (laughs) and it's like is it surprising that the data reveals that we live in a racist and sexist society yeah, you were you were talking about next door mm-hmm. before we started recording. Yeah, and that it's it's finding the same type of. Yeah, I'm working with um, two other women, Rebecca Jablonski and Fan Mai, uh, with the Center for Technology, Society, and Policy. Yeah, <laughs> it's <a> very long. <laughs> but we're working on a research project because um, last fall there was a big article in the East Bay Express about um, is there racial profiling on Nextdoor, which is like an app that was made for neighbors to connect to one another to talk about mm-hmm. garage sales, you know, street sweeping, whatnot. But there's like a crime and safety section of Nextdoor, and people were finding that um, it was a place where people were posting things like quote suspicious character in Oakland in certain neighborhoods um, it could be an African-American who was basically standing on their own front lawn but so we were trying to figure out you know is racial profiling actually happening on next door and it's my opinion that the the platforms themselves are somewhat neutral but that they reflect reality. I actually would make that assumption of everything that's developed and sometimes that's hard to do because so much of the people in the engineering and development world are white males. Yeah. I do think that when it's almost like mathematics, when you're doing math, doesn't necessarily matter who is performing the equation because the foundation and and the code can't necessarily be biased. Yeah. But it's our participation that sure, then absolutely. starts to swing it absolutely. one way or the other. And I've talked a lot on the podcast about like the narrow view that we start to develop online of what yeah. we think reality is and what reality actually is. Sure. Because the more we participate in this internet, this system, social media, Facebook, the more we get back what we put in. Yeah. So if I'm constantly looking for specific articles on yeah. now the internet, almost everything that gets aggregated yeah. to me is like some type of let's talk about Absolutely. this or that. Um, it's interesting that my Facebook feed basically f- reflects my very particular interests. You know, I think that our online experiences are ourselves amplified, like your own like little drill down into antique modern, you know, or modernist furniture. And now all of a sudden that's all you see on the yeah. sidebar ads and everything. It's like, and um, what your the people's whose posts you pause longer on like facebook recognizes that you're interested in that type of discussion yeah and so my facebook is all about art 
or networks. My, yeah, <laughs> mine too. Like that's essentially my Facebook too. <laughs> I think that the internet is starting to become a very narcissistic place. Yeah. And it's starting to become somewhere that is so easy to not see your impact on. Because what is happening is it's just a reflection of what you find the most interesting parts about you, right? Like when I'm starting to get funky glasses advertisements, I think about how cool my eyewear is. When I start (laughs) to see like all of this progressive information coming, like it's easy for me to exonerate myself as like, well, I'm clearly not part of the issue because I'm part of the internet that's having like progressive conversations or separate myself from my participation of how I contribute to the more negative aspects of, you know, something like next door. It's so interesting because, how do I put it? When I think of walking down the street in the city or in Oakland, um, the experiences are very, uh, the encounters that you have pop up and it's not what you always expect. Mm -hmm. It's not things that you control for. But if these algorithms are like seeded based on our own preferences, then those chance encounters, you know, would probably happen less, I would assume. Yeah. And so in a way, um, these systems are supposed to optimize for ourselves, but are these really neutral or can, you know, one question would be like, can algorithms be ethical? Yeah. And in one of those ways they might be is do they produce serendipity or do they just show you you know, what you prefer only. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't force you to confront the things that you're uncomfortable with. I think that the issue is, is that they will never be built that way yeah. because ultimately most people are trying to do, like most organizations are trying to do online is gain your attention. Sure. Whether that's your, your attention Absolutely. for your dollar, your attention for your like, your time, whatever it is. So any type of displeasure that would be added into yeah. that experience is not going to be thoughtfully incorporated yeah. because it will deter you from the ultimate objective, which like that's where there is a interconnection between consumerism yeah. and like our online experience. Yeah, absolutely. And I also think though that the internet becomes a reflection of what we also really want to exist, which is this insular like separatist type of existence sure you know i think that especially as to people who are in the arts community and who have gone to college and i think that i have spoken the rhetoric of being inclusive except i live in a very exclusive world and i really wrestle with the idea that do i actually want to leave that world is what i'm saying the same thing as like what i want yeah and when I'm online and I see that everything is catered towards maybe what I actually want, yeah. there's part of me that it creates a, at least an unrest in myself, but I don't know how often that like self-reflective initiative is happening with people in their online spaces and yeah. then who is responsible for trying to make up the lack of thoughtfulness there, right? Like, yeah, definitely. <laughs> and it does make me think in a way, even if you were to take your, your person or activity elsewhere, um, how much of it you carry with you. Like, I, I know this is a strange segue, but I've been going to West Oakland a lot. I'm, I'm renting an art studio out there, and I've been living in the Bay Area since 95, and that area, even in the last six months, has changed so quickly, you know? So it's like you bring 
you think that you're just doing your own thing, like doing your internet thing <laughs> sure. online, but you bring all of it with you. Like you bring all of the, the fancy coffee shops and the, you know, the fixed wheel bicycles, like all of that comes with, even something as innocent as walking down the street, you're changing the neighborhood in a way. Yeah, it's, I, I think about that a lot, you know, I think about that a lot since yeah. moving here. And I've recently have dealt with like a lot of unrest about it yeah. in terms of there's nothing about me that looks different than everybody else that yeah. is a potential problem of this situation sure. like there's nothing about my existence that is actually unique or better that like justifies my role in yeah. the gentrification of an area sure. or but then on the flip side it's like but I have to live and I want to yeah, live the way I want. So where is this balance? And it kind of to segue into like something else that we were going to talk about in terms of like, is there just like a natural evolution to, is it as calculated as we think mm-hmm. in terms of mm-hmm. like how systems develop, how mm-hmm. neighborhoods are affected, yeah. how, or is there an inevitability to it? Yeah. And you shared an article with me about everybody especially listening to this podcast, is familiar with the term of the 1%. The kind of chanting of the Occupy Wall Street of, you know, 1% of our economy is held at the top and the 99% is struggling and um, there's a major disconnect. And how the assumption of Occupy Wall Street and even the assumption of like how um, the internet is forming to this like 1% of control versus 99% of participation is as if it's very calculated and purposeful and it's a system set up this way that can be broken down. Right. But the article that you shared kind of proposed that it's an inevitable. This article is very interesting. I think some people at, um, who study networks in general, um, ecology, etc., were saying that um, this whole 1% phenomena is actually something that would trend anyways, even if you started with a system that were every node was equally weighted, but eventually these systems settle into um, concentrations of influence or power, in this case, in little clusters of capital. And mm-hmm. um, those networks, I think, I'm not saying this very much. <laughs> <laughs> I'm out tracking. <laughs> we like to think of networks, whether it's the infrastructure of the internet itself or our social networks as being e- equally distributed. But that's not actually how it works. Even if you look at the um, infrastructure of the web where the physical data centers are, it's not spread out um, equally. It d- depends on geographically where can we locate these giant yeah. things, you know? And in a similar way... Um, There's like a natural bias to where things can be yeah, developed. totally. And so it makes sense, actually, that each node is not of equal weight. And yeah. Over time... It starts to redistribute. Yeah. There's a lot of, you know, negative press about the Google buses in the city. And that it's interesting that the Google buses have relied on the existing infrastructure of public transit. And you would think that, I mean, like a rational person could understand on paper that like, what would the impact really be if we included these additional buses that became hubs for us to transport people in a more eco-friendly way to an outside location of the city. But then the impact of the system that already existed that was relatively neutral in terms of developing uh, the neighborhoods in gentrification, you add this additional system and things start to gravitate towards Towards the convenience. They start to gravitate towards the accessibility. They start to gravitate towards... And then, like you're saying, where we think about our actions as very autonomous, with every new person that shows up 
is a new thought, new idea, exactly. new presence exactly. in a prior system. The article resonated with me is that I think that there is a feeling of, I don't want to say defeat, but it seems like unobtainable effect on these systems. Like I remember hearing like the 1% versus 99% and just as like a two numbers, I was thinking, but if so many people are put out, mm -hmm. how come we can't just all mm -hmm. collectively say, we don't want 1% to do this, <laughs> right? Like sure. it seems so sure, simplistic sure, sure. when you think about it that way. Yeah. But in terms of like that there's some type of natural order to this yeah. happening, it's almost a slight relief to yeah. that feeling of um, I'm trying, but I'm not getting anywhere. Yeah, absolutely. I had the same feeling. And I think this the conversation that people have been having in the Bay Area for the last, you know, since what, 2009, you know, it's so easy for people to get highly emotional about this type of change. And I'm trying to be a lot more neutral about it and yeah. less judgmental because I, I think that these issues about how, you know, urban regions settle, I think it's beyond our, our immediate control. And in a way, like if we do want to affect change, I think it's easier to work in much smaller groups, like smaller communities of a couple hundred people instead of trying to think large scale. I'm not saying that it's impossible, but I think if you look at the way that the capital flows, it can be very discouraging if you think that you could possibly change systems by creating new laws and then there's just other ways to circumvent those yeah. rules, you know, so. We talked about this a little bit before we started recording, but this idea of an entire global system and even the United States yeah. as like as an entire system connected through the internet yeah. is so radically new. Yeah. Even our visibility with like regular communication, television, sure. phones, all of this sure. is so new that us trying to solve problems on a worldwide system yeah. is not how civilization functioned up until maybe let's say 300 years ago at best yeah. and that i think is even giving a very generous number yeah. to like our understanding of globalization as it is today that it makes sense to me when i hear about people trying to affect change on this large scale yeah. one it doesn't seem realistic because you at that scale you can't take in co into consideration all the different dichotomies that exist within yeah, it exactly like there's no way that you can create one rule within a system that yeah. will positively impact or negatively impact every single person. So, you, yeah. so then you ultimately are always catering to the most visible. Yeah. And that's where I think it becomes this like type of problematic conversation within not just the internet, but politics yeah. within, you know, I, I even think like from a city standpoint, it's yeah. too big. It's too large. Like there's just yeah. too many factors where like, my right to exist yeah. in the way I want to is just as valid as someone else's right to exist, even if privilege comes into play, money comes into play, education comes into play. There's so many factors that... And the solutions that we could come up with or propose are, you know, based on our own experience, it takes such an effort to really understand what it's like to live yeah. in another person's shoes. It's It makes me very skeptical when people go for instance, to third world countries and then have like, you will all have tents and therefore we will be protected yeah. from the rain. You know, trying to have, so this is going to have, this is going to be how you're going to solve the clean water problem. And I think, you know, if you're not living in it, it on the ground every day for years, it's very hard to understand how other people live, what their actual needs are. Yeah. You know, and the strange thing is um, the world is changing so fast. I'm not sure that 
we're going to have time to adapt anyways. <laughs> that's a, no, that's a really great point. Um, how fast can change come on a large scale yeah. that can actually impact before it's obsolete? Yeah. And I think that you see that online all the time. Yeah. There was uh, an article that I was going to try to force to talk about, but I guess I get to do it anyway, <laughs> where it talked about the, the failures of Internet Explorer. Mm-hmm. And how that as a web browser, mm-hmm. like, just continuously was either, either over the curve or mm-hmm. under the curve in a way that, like, it just could never impact the right people at the right mm-hmm. time. Mm-hmm. And the reason that Internet Explorer became so ubiquitous and, and had such a failing at such a large scale is that because Microsoft Behemoth. T- funneled yeah. people to it trying to see them solve for everyone and yeah. everything proved time and again that it it can't happen and it failed. Yeah. I'm super excited. I have some friends who've been working on the this tiny computer that I told you about, the chip computer. Mm-hmm. And um, there's a person who works there who's a specialist on mesh networks. And like immediately, like the fantasy would be that you could throw up tiny micro nets. <laughs> Instead yeah. of one giant internet that was connected um, 24-7, you could have basically little clusters of people talking themselves in a somewhat private closed network and I think that's very exciting to me because then you could have real open communication and collaboration. It's the same dream that cryptocurrency is is selling in terms of one of the things that are problematic is like this large-scale financial system that we're all tethered to and it doesn't necessarily represent every community that participates in it. Honestly, I think that the, like any type of real disruption that would happen to like our idea of existence mm-hmm. is almost taking back the the idea that you can have a small knit community that mm-hmm. functions of its own that creates its own type of value. Totally. And then be, can become autonomous and but still connected. Yeah. Because that was the problem with like the world before like I would never want to go backwards I'm never like someone that's like remember when like yeah remember when women couldn't vote and like there were slaves and a a bunch of other terrible terrible. (laughs) and dysentery and like yeah there's no me wanting to go back or like ever diminish having these systems or, or anything like that but the idea that we could take the previous concept of like cultural existence and small communities and then have the connectivity that we have now Because there's something that seems sad about the diminishing of subcultures Mm -hmm. and how right now, because of the visibility that everyone has, like visibility is so amazing and it's Mm -hmm. so important to get a voice. But then there's something that is lost about having to, it's like almost like a trade. Like I will, I will give you these unique things about my culture to be able to represent myself, which seems like such an unfair trade. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like I think that what you're talking about with the, the idea of like smaller networks or even like what I mentioned with the cryptocurrency Mm -hmm. is I think that we're starting to get an illusion of that with the internet of things the connected home the which I think is like a very false idea of like how connectivity can help us as people yeah I think that it's so consumer driven yeah and the ease of being able to like your lights can come on with a phone in your app and like the only thing that we're doing is shaving time off of things that we manually do leaving us more time to do what nothing yeah. It's so bizarre <laughs> to me that um, the problems that people are attempting to solve for are all about convenience in a society where things are already incredibly convenient yeah. for a certain class of people. <laughs> so I think that the, the whole concept of, I mean, not internet things in general, but these um, the intelligent home, it's very bizarre to me that a person would want systems that are 
you know, artificially intelligent to enhance their lifestyle because it seems like you're basically putting some kind of uh, surveillance system in your own home. <laughs> yeah, especially because there's been such a lack of the consumer voice and how data is being captured yeah. and how all of our websites are being set up that we don't really have control over the no. back end of this situation. And, yeah. you know, I worked previously for a company that it, they helped implement part of Lyric. Salesforce company and they worked doing um, something with yeah. the data yeah, yeah. that the Lyric thermostat draws and provides back to Honeywell. Yeah. And then with that data, they're supplying it to a bunch of other people that like you're not having a conversation with yeah. in terms of purchasing the Lyric, right? Yeah. That And it, it's all to help the, the back end of selling more services, more exactly. things to yeah. The homeowner. Now, granted, there is something amazing that if like your thermostat breaks and sure. you're on vacation, sure. that like these it's, very it's nice. Yes, slithered <laughs> scenarios that yeah. could possibly happen. But the other thing is more well now so it, it alerts somebody how often you're using, how much gas you're using, yeah. when you need maintenance, and it's fascinating, Leah, because it, it it reminds me like how do people solve for these problems in the 1970s if you were on vacation for two weeks, you would ask a neighbor to come in and yeah. check on your home. You know, hopefully you have human friends, you know, <laughs> that can, who can help you Yeah, check in on your homes and make sure the pipes haven't frozen over. And now um, if we delegate everything to software, it's not that the software is in itself evil, but the idea that everything is secure, I think it's a total falsehood. <laughs> and I think that I would be more comfortable with it if there was just a more critical conversation about what do we do with all this extra time. Yeah. I will say that the impact that the the internet has had on millennials yeah. like us and younger is it has created access to communities that are so far reaching yeah. that we have been able to develop in a way that is not like tethered to our parents sure. like ideologies or the or the um, morals of our direct community and I think that that's actually been an enhancement what concerns me is that there's now all of this of a certain class of a certain race can get yeah. money much faster yeah. they can get autonomy much faster and now yeah. because of all these connected products they get much more time sure but, but what do people do with it and i feel like what's happening is that people are becoming actually more apathetic and they have more time to dwell on well, what the hell am i supposed to be doing yeah i mean the whole problem with consumerism is it and this emphasis on leisure i, I never understood the idea of leisure and vacation because it, i feel that's predicated on the, it's the opposite of work yeah but if work is defined as something that is not enjoyable that you do for somebody else then of course you would want to not work but if the things that you do are driven by your own passions then there is no difference between work and play like there shouldn't sure you know really be this concept of leisure time and i think that this um drive towards escapism vacations con you know consuming products that people don't need and reading articles about things that nobody really truly is invested in i think it's this unhealthy system that we've created where people are not actually invested in anything it's just all diversion all diversionary you know? and, and i think it's like an escalation from the that's how like our media has developed right yeah. like to become either a mirror for our emotions or a escape of yeah. them and i was thinking about this currently netflix binging the wonder years yeah <laughs> and i was watching an episode where i was i was bawling like i was bawling that winnie broke up with kevin oh. 
And I had this stark realization that one, my empathy has been completely crafted by television. <laughs> and, like my adult empathy has been crafted by TV. And the other thing that I realized is that the reason I'm upset about this is there's something that I identify in this moment that I can't communicate for some reason, but I, this can, right? Mm-hmm. Like this this piece of material, this art, this yeah. television can do it. That's like highly um, curated and yeah. created where the experiences that we're having online are not, sure. not as thoughtful as that. Yeah, no. And then the alternative to the time, and I'm using air quotes for everybody listening, that you are getting back from all of these connected products are not necessarily driving that, even the same type of reflection that our media used to. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I saw, I think this study came out a while ago, but they said, um, I think it was Microsoft um, was trying to study people's attention span, and they said that um, we now have an attention span that's, less than goldfish it used to be 12 seconds maybe around 2003 and now it's um the average attention span of an american is eight seconds and a goldfish is nine seconds (laughs) 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 so um like having all of these devices and being able to have all of our needs and wants attended to immediately um has created a situation where we don't really know what we want yeah (laughs) You know, I've been struggling with that a lot lately. Me too. Where I feel like I should be in more control. And I feel like I'm in more control of my life than I've ever been in terms of like where I need to be, what I need to be doing, what information I need to get to do all of those things. But then there's something that like feels missing. I try to like, oh, maybe I'm not making enough or maybe I'm not interacting enough. Maybe it's because I moved. And then there's, then I start to get like the weird reality of maybe because we're pushed into a place of so much time to reflect with nothing mm-hmm. to reflect on mm-hmm. in a in a concrete way. Sure. I was reading an article about um, schools are trying to tackle this idea of Googling information mm-hmm. and that like because we have the access to information so quickly that we're actually not absorbing the information that we find it regurgitated and then move to the next one. Now that's not to say like I I feel like I'm I'm starting to go into like an old woman cranky type of tone. In terms of like, I think that it's amazing that we have the accessibility to so much knowledge. Absolutely. Again, there becomes a conversation of why isn't anyone having the conversation of what do we do with this time? Yeah. And I think... Except we, for like right now and us. We <laughs> don't know how to adapt to this new way of actual thinking, right? Yeah. Like if you... Th- I, I've been struggling with um, reading, for example. Like I'm... I read a ton and I used to read a lot on paper mm-hmm. um, then I have now I have a Kindle and listen to, you know I sometimes listen to books but now you can jump between all different kinds of content so I in a given day if I were to write down all the things I read it could it could hit like 20 distinct ideas you know yeah <laughs> like easily right and if every single person is doing that there's a sort of discontinuity in our thought processes and I don't I don't know that we're adapted to be able to multitask or think of so many things at the same time. Sure. Or maybe we are, but I'm reading 20 different things. You're reading 20 different things. The person on the bus is reading it. And can we even have a conversation if (laughs) our attention is so um, fragmented and disjointed? Like, how do we then socially interact? Yeah, I was. I I think that the overarching feeling that I'm getting from our conversation is this like, think big, act small. And like, 
talked about a lot in like political disruption about how like the local is the universal and I've talked about it with my own artwork in terms of the personal is universal like once you can really start identifying who you are within yourself and then your immediate community that participation will resonate and can be transferred over into other kinds of dialogue and conversation but I think that what the internet has kind of pushed us to is always having a conversation on a on a stage on a very large scale you can't talk about a small system and its trials and tribulations as a privileged person and then put it on a scale that you're trying to showcase one particular thing we can't think about the all of the internet of things and the, yeah. the convenience that it'll be bringing to everyone when it secludes others and yeah. is foundationally a representation of a lot of the racist sexist totally. you know bullshit that we've always and existed I would in love to see you know if we have you know, like connected um internet of things in like thailand versus you know the bay area look very different yeah like i think local effects there's a sort of texture to them that you just you can't understand when we think theoretically. Well, theoretically, I, I see like geometric forms, things that are highly regular. Yeah. But when we look at reality, it's totally irregular. Yeah. <laughs> it's totally Absolutely. heterogeneous and interesting. And like with that, that next door project, we were looking at the census data to try to understand how people re, uh, interact in their neighborhoods. And in next door, they break down communities into like fairly small chunks um, of like maybe uh, like 10 to 20 blocks. Mm-hmm. And even there, sometimes if you look at the census data, there's a handful of blocks that um, are predominantly this or that race. And then you cross a street and it's all like a calico cat, very, very mixed and integrated. Mm-hmm. And so the way people interact in between these two adjacent neighborhoods is can be contentious because they're right next to each other. And maybe there's like cases of, mistaken identity or whatnot I, yeah i was reading in the paper that somebody um alerted the cops to a quote suspicious person that was sitting in a car and it was an african-american man who had pulled over um to call his wife on his way home yeah. <laughs> you know what i mean like people are doing going about their business doing very innocent things but depending on you know, if you were three blocks away, this might happen. If you were five blocks in a different neighborhood, like, how might people perceive what you're doing? Sure, the, you know, the, the different results. Yeah, the effects are really that granular and small. It's funny, because when you're on the street, like, walking, you you can see the difference between, like, this area is residential, this area is more commercial, this is a transportation hub. Mm-hmm. But online, um, I think that those... Walls, gates, fences, sidewalks, and intersections exist, but we don't know how to look for them. We don't know what they look like. Yeah, we can't see. We can't see the nuances of it. Yeah, yeah. like we can't even see the nuances of our friends within our own yeah. feeds. No, like can't. I can't. You know, I, I um I didn't realize that Facebook's had an algorithm that searched out keywords and phrases and and things along the lines to identify people who could be suicidal. Wow. Like I, I didn't know that, that that was something that they consciously were yeah. thinking about within this know. platform. It's so interesting that a program could possibly understand that type yeah. of nuance. When my friends post something like a frowny face on yeah. like Twitter or Facebook, I'm just like, just tell me you want attention. Like I'm like <laughs> very dismissive of it, right? Sure, sure. And that that the program could tell before I could yeah. that something might be wrong. Yeah. Maybe that's a way in which and, and I have no idea yeah. I'm always suspicious of Facebook's interjection of, yeah. of something that seems positive. Yeah. Because 
like I will never let it escape my mind that it is a, a consumer company. Like it's a yeah. company, it's a business. Yeah, yeah. Now is the business to c- continue this platform of positivity or is there some type of social consciousness that they're trying to create in their platform and does it actually reflect the social consciousness of its mm-hmm. users? Mm-hmm. Sometimes I feel like it's another situation where if we can get the machine to do it, then I'm exonerated of having yeah, to be a participant. Having to be observant about yeah. a potential somebody who's at risk of, of harm. So it, it almost feels like the same type of system of narcissism yeah. that we've that we've kind of addressed it's funny it's like with the self-driving cars is the fantasy to then not pay attention while driving which sometimes i could understand you're tired you're sleepy if you're a trucker you're traveling crazy distances like yeah you're not going to be able to pay attention for you know seven hours straight so is the fantasy to let go or need to pay attention is that what it is i mean i don't know i've met people who are so jazzed about the self-driving car and i don't i don't see the need for it i genuinely don't like a self-driving car is a train exactly and like what what? that would be great if it was called a a choo-choo train a (laughs) a cable car because it's on a track we know where it's going we can anticipate we see in the ground yeah or it might run over people to me that this seems like (laughs) a a evolution of the car company to stronghold like a reliance on fossil fuels and everything that we've already known I don't yeah. see the the self-driving car as this progressive thing that yeah. others do and sometimes like I'm very cautious about being definitive on something that seems progressive because I I don't want the experience of being the person that's like we shouldn't have had self-driving cars and then find out that we've eliminated all autom- automobile deaths <laughs> right like it's it's like this risk that you run but to me like it, so now you have a a system of robots building robot cars that, that I just like don't understand like how this helps in any stretch of yeah, the word yeah. and again it's like if it's about getting more time yeah. then the only thing that we seem like we're setting ourselves up for with all of this time is to just be able to buy more things and yeah. distract ourselves and it's it doesn't seem like we're doing more time for in a meaningful way yeah. yeah. In the interest of time. <laughs> uh, thanks so much, Stephanie. This was a really great conversation and really thoughtful. And I'm probably going to go home and dwell on all of the ways that I feel <laughs> like yeah, arrested from like, my life. <laughs> uh, one more time, where can people find you online? Uh, StephanieLee.com. It's L-I-E.com. Yeah. yeah. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed the show. Share your thoughts and opinions about this episode's themes on Twitter, at and the internet and on the blog at leeandtheinternet.com. You can also find the show on facebook.com slash leeandtheinternet.